We come now in our service to a time to hear the, the preaching of God's Word. So if you would, please open your Bibles with me to Genesis 44. Genesis 44. As, as always, you will be helped to follow along this morning if you keep your Bible open in your lap. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find our sermon passage on page 38 of the, the Bible provided for you in the pew rack. Page, page 38. Our sermon text this morning, Genesis 44.1 through 45.15, the testing brother and the sovereign God. That's Genesis 44.1 through 45.15, the testing brother and the sovereign God. Now, I, I don't keep count, but I am almost 100% certain that our family watches more movies in December in the run-up to, to Christmas than the entire other 11 months combined. There's something about the, the tradition of it, the nostalgia of watching the classics year after year. And yes, that includes even the sappy Hallmark movies. Let's be honest, they all basically have the same plot, the same mediocre writing, are, are designed to make you cry and, and always, always have a happy ending. You know, as soon as that certain character enters the scene or, or the plot moves in that direction, my wife, Rebecca, will predict exactly what will happen, and it always does. But life isn't that formulaic, is it? How, how wonderful would it be if, if life was like a Hallmark movie? You know, when, when we met a new person, they would indicate what role they will play in our lives, and it happens exactly that way. Or that we knew that, that whatever trouble, obstacles come into our life, there will be a happy ending with satisfying resolution and all that within 90 minutes. But that's, that's not life. And because life isn't so predictable, neither is the Bible. The Bible is not a Hallmark movie where every story goes more or less to the same ending. It is, it is rather real history. And in the, the biblical story that we've been in for the last two months, where Joseph was sold into slavery, he did not know at the beginning how it would end. As each twist and turn came, he did not know where it was all leading. Sure, we might have the privilege of already having read the end of the story, but when the, the sons of Jacob were living it, they couldn't know what would happen next. We're at a point in the story where Joseph has ascended to the, the great heights of the right hand of Pharaoh, but the story is not resolved yet. Deep into the famine Jacob has sent his sons now twice to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, but he has kept his identity hidden. He has been secretly testing his brothers. One great question remains. Have his brothers changed? Are, are they still the men who hated, attacked, and, and sold him into slavery? Will this family... The sons of Jacob remain fractured because of their sin. Or will be a reconciliation be possible? Sometimes sinners don't change. 
Sometimes reconciliation is not possible. What will God do among the sons of Jacob? So our big idea today, our sovereign God graciously tests, transforms, and reconciles sinners. Our sovereign God graciously tests, transforms, and reconciles sinners. We're going to read our passage in three stages that will go along with three points today that they really map onto that, that big idea. So our outline, number one, tested, that in the first 13 verses of chapter 44. Second, transformed in chapter 44, 14 through 34, and finally reconciled, that in the first 15 verses of 45. Tested, transformed. And reconciled. We'll see these three things as we read the passage bit by bit. Well, we'll start in a moment, but, but before we do, it's appropriate for us to, to pause, to pray, and ask God for his help in our hearing and for the proclamation of God's word. So please pray with me once more. Father, you tell us in your word to whom you will look. It is the one who is humble who is contrite, and who trembles at your word. So, Father, we we know that we need your blessing. We need you to look upon us with your eyes of grace. And so we pray you would give us the grace of humility. Or that we would know our place before the sovereign God. Or that you would give us contrition of heart. Father, a sense of our sin and neediness. And Father, trembling at your word, Lord, that we would draw near to your word this morning with with fear and expectation that the sovereign God who reveals himself for his own glory will do so this morning. So Lord, we, we do pray that you would test us, you would transform us, that if there are any here who are not reconciled to you, that they would be reconciled this morning. Lord, you would give us the grace to pursue reconciliation in our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Genesis 44, starting in verse 1. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the stewards of his house, fill the men, that is his brothers, sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this cup that the Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your service to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. And the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest, 
and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. The word of the Lord. Well, our, our first point, brothers and sisters, number one, tested. First point, tested. There is no break, you notice, between our passage today in chapter 44 from where we left off last week in chapter 43. So in, in 43, the ten brothers had, had made the long trek back to Egypt to buy grain after their, their first supply had, had run out. There in 43, Judah was able to convince Jacob to send along with them Benjamin in, in Judah's care so that they could not only rescue Simeon from the dungeon in Egypt, but also to, to buy grain, return to Canaan, and provide for their families. But when the ten brothers arrived in Egypt, they walked into a, another surprise. On the first, it was accusations and imprisonment. And on the second, it was welcome and, and feasting with the governor. So there in chapter 43, God had granted the prayer of Jacob to give them mercy before the governor of the land. So there they were reunited with their brother, Simeon, and, and had fellowship with the king's right-hand man. But that feast at the end of 43 is, is not the end of the matter. Joseph has here one last test for his brothers, the brothers that he clearly loves and, and has compassion for. So here in chapter 44, operation test phase two begins. Their, their money is again returned to their sacks as it was on the, the first journey. But now Joseph's own silver cup is placed in the sack of the youngest, his brother by the, their same mother, Rachel, and the most vulnerable among them, his brother, Benjamin. And, and Joseph knows what he is doing. This is, this is his intentional plan. He is setting up for his brothers a, another test. Remember, he himself was, was hated and, and sold into slavery into Egypt because he was the favored brother, one of the sons of Rachel. So at the end of, of chapter 43, Joseph gave Benjamin a, a greater portion than any of the other brothers at the feast. He gave him five times as many, and this is part of the test. Now, by his wise plan, his brothers will have an opportunity to leave, again, a favored brother in, in bondage. How will they act this time? So in the morning, verse 3, with no other questions about why the feast, the brothers saddled their donkey and, and leave for home. But, you know, by now they should know to check their, their sacks, but they don't. Joseph lets them go only a short distance before sending his steward after them with, with new allegations, not spies as on the first trip, but, but now thieves. You know, obviously, along with the steward, we know that this is all just an, an elaborate ruse. They haven't actually stolen anything. They have been honest men. But again, Joseph is wisely setting up a difficult scenario to see how, how they would respond. Joseph directs the steward to, to ask a question there at the end of, of verse 4. 
And it gets to the, the heart of, of not just this narrative, but the entire narrative of Joseph. Why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you done evil when we have done good? Obviously, in, in context, the, the steward's question is, is about why they have stolen from their gracious host who has treated them so well. But, but I think it's also the question Joseph wants to ask about what happened when he was 17, when they had sold him into slavery. He, he can't ask them directly without revealing his identity. But back at the beginning, in, in chapter 37, he had done no evil to them, that they should attack and, and sell him. The, the dreams that particularly had incited them to, to hate him even more, in fact, to be jealous of him, were in fact good news that he would, would be God's means of delivering them from coming famine. And they had repaid that, that good, with evil. So the question, why have you repaid evil for good? How will they respond to this question? Just to be clear he, here, he says in verse 5 that he uses this silver cup to practice divination. Egyptians would uh, swirl liquid in, in a cup and, and attempt to read it to discern the future. Uh, I don't think that Joseph actually does that, practices divination. I, I think it's just still a part of his disguise that, that he's trying to mask his identity. It's, it's clear throughout the narrative that, that he has not depended on swirling liquids to discern the future. He has depended on the Lord for wisdom. Well, in, in verse 6, the, the blue and red lights flash behind the, the donkey caravan. The, the steward catches up to them and, and poses the question given by, by Joseph. They are, of course, indignant. There in verses 7 and 8, why would you ask this? Why, why would they steal, they say, when they had been so honest to actually bring back the money that had been placed in their sacks, maybe inadvertently, on the first journey? They're so certain that they, they make a rash vow there in verse 9. The one who has done it will die, and the rest will become servants. Well, the, the steward in verse 10 makes a, a more moderate suggestion. Only the guilty will become a servant, and the rest can go free. I, I wonder what they were, were thinking when each bag was opened one by one, intentionally starting with the eldest, and going in pattern, but one by one, one by one, until reaching the last. They'll find in each sack the money has been returned again. Last time they took that as a sign of God's, God's judgment. Here maybe they, they know that at this point it's a sign of God's provision. But finally, the last sack is opened. In verse 12, the climatic moment, the cup is discovered with Benjamin. And they had just volunteered him to die. Before we consider their response in verse 13, I, I think we need to reflect on this test. What, what Joseph is doing for his brothers, what in fact he has been doing for the last few chapters. If we recall Genesis 39, we know that Joseph has had God's presence with him all throughout his time in Egypt. The re refrain there of chapter 39 was, the Lord was with Joseph. God has clearly given him wisdom to interpret dreams. 
to rule with discernment and, and even to remain hopeful and obedient in the midst of, of profound adversity and prosperity. All that to say, I think we should interpret Joseph's test of his brothers here now in their, their last phase as God's testing of these men. We must consider, brothers and sisters, that, that God does test us. And this, this in fact, is, is not new. If you've been with us in the, the story of Genesis, you'll remember that God tested, same word, Abraham, in Genesis 22 by directing him to, to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. What we just read this morning from Psalm 105 said that Joseph, too, was tested in all of his waiting. Later in the Bible, we'll see many, many examples of, of God testing his people. In Judges 2.22, God will test all of Israel, the entire nation, by leaving them surrounded by pagan nations. He will test, for example, King Hezekiah by leaving him to his own devices when he re- receives Babylonian envoys, messengers from, from his enemies. And why? Well, in that story with King Hezekiah, Second Chronicles 32.31 says this very plainly for us. He does this in order to test Hezekiah and to know all that was in his heart. To test Hezekiah to know all that was in his heart. Our sovereign God sends trials like like this on the the sons of Jacob to, to test, to know what is in their hearts. Obviously, he knows what is in their hearts. But nothing is known until it's, it's actually done. And the question is, do we know what is in our hearts? It's often so easy, saints, for us to, to say or, or think that, that what we do when pressed by difficult circumstances, that, that's out of character, right? How many times do we use the excuse, oh, that wasn't like me? When in fact, in the moments of trial, we see precisely who we are. Moments when we're called to do something hard, like Abraham. Or seasons of waiting, like Joseph. Or when temptation is all around, like Israel. Or when enticing offers come, even from our enemies, like Hezekiah. But, but in the tests, we have to make sure one thing is absolutely clear, saints. That though God tests us, he will never tempt us us. James 1, the New Testament letter, is is all about testing. It says in verse 3 that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Verse 12, when we have stood the tests, we will receive the crown of life. But then in James 1, 13, he says this very clearly, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. He himself tempts no one. Yes, God tests, but he does not tempt. He does prove his servants, but he never seeks to induce them to sin or or to destroy their faith. You can think of it this way. It's only when you put heat to the pot and it boils over that you see what was hidden inside. The heat of trials only exposes what is already in our hearts. And this is actually part of God's purposes in trials, in difficulties. To expose 
and give us a chance to refine what is really deep inside all along. Our sovereign God graciously tests sinners. Now, I wonder, how has God been testing you lately? What trials, what difficulties has God brought you through? And when he has, what have you learned about your own heart? What is, what is in there that might only be exposed by the heat? What might he be meaning to teach you, not only about yourself, but about his grace and his power? Is he revealing sin to you that needs to be repented of and, and fought? Is he calling you to pursue reconciliation for some past wrong? Trials are like an x-ray for the heart. They show what otherwise we cannot see. And that's exactly what this trial does for the brothers. We see what this trial reveals in the hearts of these brothers there in verse 13. Moses doesn't record any words exchanged after they find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. There, there might have been none, but he, he does record that every brother tore their clothes this is a sign of, of lament, of, of mourning. The last time someone tore their clothes in mourning, it was Jacob when these brothers deceived him with Joseph's bloody coat back in Genesis 37. Now it is the exact opposite. Every brother united in their lament of the prospect of this other son of Rachel dying. It's, it's hard for us to imagine what they would have felt in this moment. After the, the roller coaster of the fear that they might become servants, and then the elation of, of feasting and being served, now back to dread. I saw, for the first time ever this week, It's a Wonderful Life, so it's on my mind. I think this must be, this feeling must be something like what the protagonist, George Bailey, the, uh, was feeling when he too was accused like this brother here, of, of theft. He had spent his entire life helping the people of Bedford Falls, a, a great sacrifice to himself, running a small bank. But his uncle misplaces $8,000, which means he is going to go to jail. The bank will collapse and the entire town will suffer. Do you know the scene? It is a feeling of absolute hopelessness. In fact, his worst fears, the worst fears coming true right before your eyes. This, exactly, what is happening to the brothers is the scenario that their father Jacob told them would cause him to die early because of sorrow. And they are powerless to do anything. You remember that the steward here says that, that only the guilty brother would become a servant. They were, by the steward's permission, free to leave Benjamin with the steward, as sad as they might be, and, and keep going home with their money and grain for their families. Sure, Jacob would suffer, maybe even die. Judah, too, who had guaranteed Benjamin's safety. But the others would be fine. They could even come back for more grain if they needed. There were no conditions on them returning. But instead of taking the easy way out, all of them return with their brother Benjamin to the, to the city, to the governor. And what we have here in verse 13 is the first sign, I think, that these are not the same brothers as they were 
in chapter 37. So our, our second point, brothers and sisters, transformed. Number two, transformed in the rest of chapter 44. What we have here is the longest speech in the book of Genesis from Judah. If Moses dedicated so many words to this when he could have edited it and made it shorter, it should, it should signal to us that this is very significant. And what we have here is, I think, one of the clearest pictures in Genesis of Christ as our substitute. So read along with me, starting in 44 through the end of the chapter. Sorry, verse 14 through the end of the chapter. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What, What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safely, safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The word of the Lord. Well, Judah, who had in chapter 43 offered himself as pledge, as a guarantee of Benjamin's safety, to his father Jacob, here acts on his commitment. I don't know if you noticed, I'm sure you didn't keep count, but, but here in Judah's speech, the word father is mentioned 14 times. 
you had to sum it up in, in, in whole, we have Judah offering himself in place of his brother out of love, out of concern for his father. Does that pattern sound like someone else in the Bible? There are a few things here to observe before we consider how it points us to Jesus. In verse 14 there at the start, Moses again shows us the solidarity of the brothers. Even though he singles out Judah because of his prominence in what will follow, all of the brothers fall down before the Egyptian governor. And after the the governor asks what they have done, Judah makes a, a candid confession there in verse 16. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. They are united, not only in their sense of guilt, but they're offered to be servants to the governor. Even though it's Judah who speaks, they are unanimous in their confession of guilt. But, but consider this. We know that they have not taken the cup. And the brothers know this. They know they didn't take the cup, even though they were found with it. So why not, at this chance, defend themselves? Why confess guilt? I don't think they're confessing to a crime they know they didn't commit because they think it's the only way out. I think at this point, we have to conclude that they, together, the eleven are finally acknowledging their guilt in selling Joseph into slavery. Not just among themselves as they talk about themselves, but but to others. And that they deserve this kind of punishment. Notice the way they put it. God has found out the guilt of your servants. This is the guilt that they have been trying to hide now for 22 years. But God is finding it out. So they interpret this this calamity, which now they they are innocent in, as God's way of revealing their true and actual guilt of hating, attacking, and selling their brother. And since all 11 were a part of the, the plot, they are all guilty. We have already seen Judah back in chapter 38 confess his guilt and repent of of sin. And now he he leads his brothers in doing the same for an even earlier sin. Even though they all accept their guilt, the governor insists that that only one must pay the penalty there in verse 17. They they are free to go. They have a a get-out-of-jail-free card. If they want... Even by the governor's permission, they can just leave the beloved son of Rachel behind, abandoned to bondage. But not this time. Verses 18 through 34, Judah summarizes much of Genesis 42, some of Genesis 43, and even makes mention of some of the events of of Genesis 37. So basically, Judah is giving the governor the necessary background to realize just how important Benjamin is to return to their father. But the key is there at the end in verses 33 and 34. Please, he says, let your servant, meaning Judah, let your servant remain instead of the boy, for I fear the evil that will find our father. Judah, in conclusion, offers himself as substitute for his brother Benjamin to to suffer the punishment in his place. 
Certainly he did this out of love for his younger brother Benjamin, but, but the controlling love, what he mentions time and time again, is love for his father. And, and don't miss this. This is not because his father has changed. Even in this speech, Judah acknowledges that Jacob is still showing favoritism. Verse 27, he quotes Jacob saying that my wife bore me two sons. What about the other three wives? What about the other ten sons? In other words, Jacob still doesn't even count Judah as one of his sons. This is evidence, I think, that, that at least for Judah, their father's favoritism is no longer provoking them to hatred and strife. They are transformed. That's what contrition does to the saints what we've seen happen in Judah's heart in Genesis 38. We don't tolerate sins, but it does make us gentle because we too are, are sinners. You know, their circumstances are remarkably similar to what happened in Genesis 37. Now, a beloved brother has been shown favoritism, once a coat, now five, five times the meal, and another opportunity to be rid of him. Once Ishmael, Ishmaelite traders... And now left behind in the bondage of, of the king directly. But as similar as the circumstances are, their responses are remarkably different. One Bible commentary sums it up well. He writes, 22 years earlier, Judah engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery. Now he is prepared to offer himself as a slave so that the other son of Rachel can be set free. 22 years earlier, he stood with his brothers and silently watched when the bloodied tunic that they had brought to Jacob sent their father into a fit of anguish. Now he's willing to do anything in order not to have to see his father suffer that way again. Both their admission of guilt in verse 16 and now Judah's selfless sacrifice here in verses 33 and 34 show that they have been remarkably Transformed. Our sovereign God graciously transforms sinners. We, we must conclude that, that although we don't know the details, that all of the other brothers have gone through a similar conviction of sin and personal repentance, now evidenced in this new contrition and, and honesty and a willingness to be held responsible for their guilt. Again, it's something like the character Ebenezer Scrooge in the Charles Dickens novel, A Christmas Carol. You know, it's the work of, of three spirits to bring deep conviction on Scrooge for his past sins so that he experienced something like, by the end, a new birth. Once stingy, now generous. Once miserable, now merry. But this... Brothers and sisters, it's not the work of some generic spirits. This isn't even ultimately the work of Joseph, despite his wise plan. He had great power, power to create scenarios, but he could not decide how it went in the end. Life is not a Hallmark movie. He could not bring conviction and new life. Only God, by his spirit, can. The, the Bible is clear to be a Christian, to experience God's grace, is to be transformed. It is literally to be a new creation. 
And that new life shows up now in owning our sins and to prefer to suffer rather than to do more wrong. And how does that grace come to us? The grace that can transform dead sinners to living saints? It's by a Judah-like Savior. Judah here, as I mentioned, is one of the the clearest pictures of the Savior that we have in, in Genesis. Judah's willingness here to suffer as a substitute for his brother out of love for his father foreshadows the the substitutionary suffering of the father's ultimate son, Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, you and I, we are not the Judah of the story. We're not the hero who steps in to save the day. We should identify with Benjamin, the one doomed to punishment. We are all truly guilty of crimes. But our crimes are not about against an, an Egyptian governor, but the, the maker and ruler of all. Our sins, our, our disobedience to God's law, our, our coldness to God's beauty, our pride in ourselves deserve God's just wrath. And our offenses against an infinitely good God warrant eternal justice. God will not relent from seeing all wrongs judged. The only way for us, like Benjamin, to escape the hopelessness of our dilemma is for another to step forward before the king and take the punishment for us. And that is what Christ did on the cross. Jesus stepped forward to suffer the sentence that we had earned by our guilt so that, like Benjamin, we can be free freed from our condemnation. And again, the decisive motive in this passage for Judah was above all his love for his father. And the decisive motive for Jesus was above all his love for his father. Take, for example, John fourteen thirty one. Jesus says, I do as the father commanded me, including offering his life up as a sacrifice. I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. You know, Jesus is not an idolater. The highest object of Jesus' affections, his greatest love and the motive behind his willing substitutionary death is his love for the Father. Yes, Jesus does love you. He died because he loves you. He loves you more than any other human love can ever even approach Paul calls his love a love that surpasses knowledge. His love is so great that we need even supernatural strength by the Spirit to understand its immense dimensions. And as great as his love is for us, his love for his Father is greater. The three persons of our triune God have existed long before there was even time in the perfect communion of eternal love. And you And I are invited into the love and the fellowship of the Father with the Son because the better Judah took your guilt upon himself. If you are here this morning today and and you have never trusted in Christ to to bear your guilt, I invite you to turn from your sins and, and trust in Christ's willing sacrifice for you. He is willing to forgive all 
who come to him in faith. And the eternal love of the Father will follow you all the days of your life and into eternal life. With Benjamin, it is a a terrible thing to stand alone accused before an earthly power, but it is infinitely worse to stand alone guilty before the infinitely good and just God. Let Christ stand in for you. Whether you are a Christian or not, I hope you can't see this display of love of Judah for his brother and father and and remain unmoved. It certainly moved Joseph so much that he could no longer control himself. Our third point today, brothers and sisters, number three, reconciled. In chapter 45, verses 1 through 15, reconciled. Read with me, starting in chapter 45, verse 1, and I'll pause as we go to make comment. So chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you, can you picture it? Up to this point, Joseph has been admirable in holding his composure, maintaining his disguise without giving a hint, though he had to, to rush out at a point or two. But now Joseph is overcome by emotion. Whatever control he had is, is gone. He shouts for everyone to leave his voice trembling. Weeping, it says, so loud that the entire household can hear. Not, not whimpering, not even sobbing, but wet tears of loud joy, of love. We see here Joseph's heart finally unleashed, a heart of love for his brothers, a heart yearning to be honestly known for it by his brothers, to be aching to be reconciled to them. What's changed? Well, finally and fully, the brothers have proved, not just by words, but by clear actions, that they have loved their brother, Benjamin, and their father, Jacob, that the family, at least the relationship among these brothers, has been transformed. It has become remarkably different. So we read in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth 
that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Well, Joseph here gives his faith-filled interpretation of the events of his life, of the last 22 years of his suffering and their sin and God's purpose. Looking forward, there are five more years of the seven-year famine to come. So in verse 6, he, he invites his family to come settle in the land of Egypt. They will be preserved through the rest of the famine. In verses 9 through 11, he dismisses his brothers with a message for their father. And the first words out of his mouth for his father, there in verse 9, God. He has a big view of God. God has done this. And he invites his father and all of their families down. So in verse 11, he will provide for them. Hurry, he says, bring my father down. But the key interpretive verses, looking back, are in verses 4 through 8. And a classic statement of, of God's providence. He is able here to affirm, yes, you sold me into Egypt. Verse 4, he repeats it. Verse 5, you sold me here. They are guilty. But from verse 5 on, three times, God is said to have sent Joseph. And three times, God's purpose is to preserve life in verse 5. And to preserve a remnant, to keep alive many survivors in verse 7. He says it in so many ways so that it is absolutely clear. There can be no confusion. Yes, they are guilty and responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. They have what you might call free will or agency. But at the same time, they did exactly what God had intended to send Joseph to Egypt to achieve his good that he had purposed. To, to put it another way, the Bible here in story affirms both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. One does not destroy the other. So when he comforts them in, in verse 5, telling them not to be distressed or angry with themselves, he is not excusing or justifying their sin. You will never be able to defend your sin by citing God's good purposes in it. No, God's prompt, uh, providence will never be permission, only proof of his absolute power and unrelenting good. I have to say, brothers and sisters, the truth that is the bedrock of Joseph's faith here is, is one of the most comforting truths in the Bible. Nothing at all can stand in the way of God and His good purposes. And every single shred of wrong and evil will be dealt with. He doesn't have to choose between one or the other. And this truth is, is not just true, but God teaches this truth to his people through their suffering. I, I can tell you this truth. You can read of it here in the story of Joseph. But God has a way of, of forging it into us on the anvil of, of suffering and by testing. I think of, of some Christians who are bitter in their suffering, who Grumble and gripe. Like Judah, we can be gentle with the sins of other without excusing them. 
But, but grumbling in the midst of suffering isn't just sin. It also robs us of, of the joy, the, the comfort, the peace of resting in God's absolute power and unrelenting good. And it is that joy, that rest, that overflows in the renewed fellowship of these brothers in our last two verses. Read with me, 45, 14, and 15. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Tears of joy flow freely. All the brothers exchanging kisses of affection with Joseph, and they they talked with him. I am sure they have so many questions, not just about their last few interactions, but, but how did you get here? You were a prisoner? How did you get to be prime minister of Egypt? They have 22 years to catch up on. But I think it's also a callback to Genesis 37. At the start, they had hated him so much that it says they couldn't even speak peacefully with him. If you remember the plot of the, the Christmas classic Home Alone, it also begins with intense rivalry and hatred between siblings and, and even animosity from mom. No one has anything nice to say to Kevin. Of course, when they abandon their brother and son, it wasn't intentional. But, but in the end, it ends with all the brothers and the mom all affirming their love for Kevin. And the meanest brother, Buzz, even saying something nice to Kevin. Brothers, talking again. This is a picture of genuine reconciliation. It is relationship restored through testing, through trial. It is the removal of the hostile distance between two estranged parties. And this has been Joseph's goal all along. Reconciliation like this is not possible where there is no repentance and forgiveness. In both our relationships with one another and with God, reconciliation is is made possible only after the offenses are confessed, forsaken, and forgiven. And this is always the work of God. Our sovereign God graciously reconciles sinners. When anyone has the humility to own sin, the, the strength to forsake it, and the courage to seek forgiveness, it is the work of God. We, left to ourselves, love our sin and love ourselves. Brothers and sisters, may it never be said of us that it took us 22 years to seek reconciliation with the ones we have sinned against. Those who have been reconciled to God through Christ and transformed by that reconciliation will love to replay that reconciliation wherever they can. You, you can't control how other people will respond to you, but you are responsible to own your own sin, to forsake it, and to sincerely seek forgiveness. Well, church, we, we should conclude life isn't a Hallmark movie. It's not so predictable. Life is a, a winding and, and troubled road. But the point of biblical stories like, like that of Joseph and his brothers is to help us trust from the heart that God is for us 
in all of the strange turns. Our sovereign God is plotting the course and managing the troubles to test us, revealing our sins and and shaping our hearts to transform us, making our love, the the self-sacrificial love of the pattern of our Savior, and to reconcile us, not only to Himself through Christ, but to all others who are one with us in Christ. Our sovereign God graciously tests, transforms, and reconciles sinners. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we exalt your name for your gracious work in our lives to test, to transform, and to reconcile. Father, we we thank you that even in the midst of the difficulty, the, the pain, the heat of our trials, we know that you have good purposes. Lord, not only for ourselves, Lord, but but in your schemes for those around us and your eternal glory. Father, we pray that you would use these trials to, to transform us into the pattern of Christ our Savior. Lord, whose selfless love gives us the power to transform. Lord, whose selfless love is our pattern. Father, today we pray that as you have reconciled us to Christ through this selfless love, Father, that we too would pursue the work of reconciliation among us. Or that we would be marked by the same kind of love or that your name would be exalted among us. It's in Christ's name that we pray all this. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we will have in in just a moment a chance to respond to God's word in worship. But I would encourage you to spend a, a moment in silent reflection considering the word that you have heard this morning. Considering how it is that, that God is working to test you, to transform you, and call you to reconciliation with himself and with others. Please observe a moment of silent reflection.